Our world needs peace. When we think of that word peace, our hearts and our minds immediately go to the situation in Ukraine. Those poor, innocent people desperately need peace from the violence of war. But there are so many other current situations where peace is longed for. Our young people and students sitting exams need peace. The families worrying about how they're going to get through this cost of living crisis need peace. Those awaiting medical diagnoses and hospital operations need peace. The quarter of our population who at some point this year will have a mental health issue need peace. Those of us whose hearts are ravaged by grief, bereavement, loss, we need peace. Those of us who carry regret or shame, great burden on our lives, we need peace. We all, in one way or another, need peace at times. Peace with our world and our circumstances, peace with other people, peace within ourselves. And of course, the Bible also tells us that we need peace with God. When we think of the word peace, we immediately think of the absence of war. But when we reflect a little longer, we soon come to realise that peace is so much more than that. Peace is a state of being. Peace needs to be realised in every aspect of our lives. And in that reading we heard, we discover the only one who can bring us that level of peace. And it is the risen Lord Jesus. As our reading began, the disciples were in real need of peace. There they all were, so frightened, huddled together behind locked doors. You can imagine them with the, the window shuttered and the lamplight kept low. You can imagine them speaking in hushed tones so to not make too much noise and raise attention. The fear and the unease in that room would have been palpable. And our reading tells us why. Verse 19, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Only three days previous, these disciples had witnessed their dearest friend arrested and found guilty on false charges and then brutalized in the most horrendous way. There had been mocking, there had been spitting, there had been flogging, and then there had been that cruel, agonizing, suffocating death on the cross. Jesus was dead, and these disciples absolutely feared that they would be next. They'd made no secret of their allegiance. They'd walked with him as he rode in on that donkey. They'd been there when he turned the tables in the temple. They'd been hanging on his every word as he taught the Jewish leaders. Jesus had been killed for these things and they colluded with him. The next ones hanging from the wooden cross would be them, or so they feared. 
Yet, of course, beneath that very real fear for their lives was a whole series of other fears. These disciples had spent the last three years following this man, Jesus. They'd made him their master. They'd put him before everything else, including their families. It wasn't just a friend that they'd lost three days ago. It was their hopes and their dreams as well. They truly believed that Jesus was going to be the one to rescue them from all the things that bound them. And so as they huddled there that night behind those locked doors, it must have seemed like they backed the wrong man. And they were now frightened that they'd utterly wasted the last three years of their life. They must have feared the mockery and the scorn that would come their way when they traipsed back home to their village in a few days' time. So let's get this right. At the start of this reading, these disciples are in utter turmoil. They're fearful for their lives. They're fearful for their futures. They feel dejected. They feel humiliated. They're empty without hope. They're as low as you can go. And then everything in an instant changes. From those pits of despair, within just a few words, we read that they are overjoyed. What possibly could have caused such an incredible transformation? Well, there was only one thing. The risen Lord Jesus comes into the room and says, Peace be with you. Oh, let us try and capture the impact of those words. We can't really. Peace will be with you. And he then shows them his hands and his side to prove that it is really him. So here were the grounds for peace. Their friend is alive again. Their master and Messiah is alive again. Their hopes and dreams are alive again. Here were the grounds for peace. Every word that Jesus had ever told them had been proved to be true. Every promise he'd ever made them was true. Everything he'd led them to believe about being the son of God was true. Here were the grounds for peace. On the cross, all sins were forgiven. It worked. At the empty tomb, death and devil and hell were defeated. And this was the first day. The first day of a new world order. Rome one day would pass. The kingdom of God had begun. And of course for those disciples as their hearts were somersaulting within them and their emotions were reeling. It would take time for all those things to seep in. But in that moment as Jesus spoke those words, peace did indeed flood the scene. Their fears were dispelled. And we all need to hear this today. There's no promise that life will be easy. There's no promise in the Bible that says that we'll get through all of our days with nothing to worry about. In fact, those notions are lies. But when you truly know that Jesus is alive and Jesus is with you, present in your pain, it's possible to find peace in the most difficult of circumstances. Jesus is alive. 
So he's with us in the exam hall. He's with us in the job centre and the food bank. He's with us at the hospital and in the operating theatre. He's with us at the graveside. He's with us in that dark cave of depression. He's with us in those moments of deepest regret. He is with us and he comes to us and he whispers to us, Peace be with you. In the risen Jesus, we have a promise for peace. Peace in our world. One day he's going to return and remove all war and violence for good. Peace with each other. Peace with ourselves. Peace with God. He is the Prince of Peace. And his resurrection proves it. That resurrection changed the lives of those frightened disciples. Only the resurrection could have done that. And I encourage you to allow that evidence to lead you to you placing your trust in him as well. For then you will start to receive the peace that he offers. But I want us now to return back to the text. Because there's so much more that Jesus has to say. Did you notice that after these fearful disciples were met by him and he gives them this greeting of peace and after he shows them his hands and his side and and they start rejoicing? Did you notice Jesus said the exact same thing again? For a second time in verse 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. Why does he do that? Why does he repeat himself? Especially when the words had such a big effect the first time he said them. What's going on here? This must be deliberate. And the secret to this conundrum lies in the language that Jesus was speaking. Jesus would have conversed with his friends in Hebrew or Aramaic. And in Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. You may have heard that word before. But the word shalom is a very deep word, a very rich word, a word of many levels and layers. Shalom does mean peace, but a peace on a much bigger scale than what we've been thinking about. Shalom means more than just ease from our anxieties and our fears. Shalom means more than just the end of war. Shalom means more than the ceasing of conflict within ourselves. Shalom means wholeness, completeness. Shalom is that state of being where everything's at peace. And this is what Jesus wants to give to his disciples. And Jesus' offer of shalom begins with him then giving the disciples a new purpose for their lives. Listen again to what follows this greeting in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the new purpose for the disciples' lives. Just as the Father, with his great love, sent his Son into the world to teach and to heal and to rescue, Jesus is sending his disciples out with that same mission. Now, for us to really appreciate this moment, we need to remember what these disciples have been up to in the previous days. Peter, impetuous Peter, he's betrayed Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. James and John, 
the competitive brothers, they've argued about which one of them is going to be the greatest now that Jesus is gone. And the rest of the disciples, well, they weren't much better. They all scarpered when Jesus was arrested, leaving him to face his fate on his own. These disciples have behaved so badly over the last few days. So when the risen Jesus comes and stands amongst them and he gives them evidence that every word he's ever said to them is true and that he's always been faithful to them, they must have been feeling guilty. Maybe ashamed. And amongst all the joy at seeing Jesus again, there must have been that sinking feeling in their heart that at some point he was going to call them out for their unfaithfulness to him. And knowing that, you can see the beauty of what Jesus does here. Because the best way to ever show forgiveness to someone is to invite them back into your life. To give them a significant role to play once more for you. To demonstrate that you still value them. And that is what Jesus does in this moment. He gives them a new purpose for their lives. And let's think a little bit more about how significant that purpose is. For Jesus says something else in this passage, doesn't he? In verse 23, he sends them out and he says, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. Wow. That's an incredible thing to say, isn't it? What a heavy instruction. To the disciples at the time, it would have sounded almost blasphemous because they knew only God could forgive sins. Who could possibly feel up to that task? Who possibly would want that responsibility? It's important that we understand what Jesus is asking of them here. I'd like you for a moment to imagine a great orchestral symphony. Maybe you've heard one live in concert, or you've watched the proms on the telly. A hundred or so instruments coming together to make one piece of music of the greatest beauty. When you think of a symphony like that, only the composer could achieve its writing. You need to be a genius, a Mozart, a Beethoven. Yet for the wider world to benefit from that composer's genius, the music has to be performed. It has to be performed up and down the land, across the continents, down through the centuries, by countless orchestras and musicians. And now apply that to what Jesus is saying here. Only Jesus could deal with sin. Only Jesus could defeat death. Only Jesus could start the kingdom of God here on earth. Our forgiveness could only come by a perfect, innocent life being sacrificed in our place. And only a God-man could live that life. There will only ever be one cross and one empty tomb. And the Bible makes it clear that at that cross, our sin was dealt with for good. But the message of Jesus' achievement now needs to be spread throughout the world. The disciples are to tell the story, announcing to everyone that their greatest regrets and their greatest failures 
can be forgiven. They're not to be timid. Sin is a serious business. It's like a deadly disease. If you don't deal with it, it'll kill you. But if you turn to Jesus, forgiveness can be found. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the song, the music that the disciples are to play with their lives. So I hope we can understand what Jesus is doing here. When he says, peace be with you, a second time, he's not just removing their anxieties like he did at the beginning. He's making them whole again. As he speaks these words to them, they're to know they don't need to carry around regret anymore. They don't need to feel the shame for their behaviour any longer. They're part of the family. They're loved and they're valued. And so much so, they have the greatest responsibility to be getting on with. Truly, when you know real purpose in your life, it gives you a sense of meaning. It brings peace. Completeness. And it may be that some of you here this morning are hungry for that. It may be that you come today and you feel a little bit worthless or you think, I haven't got much to offer or some of the things that I've done, that counts me out. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you know the risen Jesus, you have the greatest purpose of all to tell others about your friend and your master. Now we're coming to the end. But I want to make sure that we don't leave here this morning a little bit naive. Because I'm sure the disciples would have been very honoured by this new purpose given to them. But I'm equally sure they would have been very nervous about it. Announcing the gospel to the world was going to be challenging. It was going to bring them into conflict, as it still does today. And wonderfully, Jesus knew this. So before he leaves them, he gives them another gift of shalom. Another gift that will help make their lives complete. Immediately after giving them their new purpose, he gives them the power that they need to accomplish it. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you look back through John's gospel, particularly chapters 14 to 16, you will find that Jesus has already taught his disciples a lot about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' own spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Father's gift to his people. The Holy Spirit is the very real presence of God on earth. And it's by the Spirit that the risen Jesus remains with us, his followers, right now and has done across the world and down through the centuries. God is here by his Spirit, in this room and in our hearts. You know, people get so confused about the Holy Spirit. Some people think the Spirit is all about some mystical experience and warm, fuzzy emotions. Well, it's true, we sometimes get those, but that's not the focus. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us to do the task that Jesus has given us. To proclaim the cross and the resurrection to the world. 
I want to take you back for a moment, right back, back to the very beginning. Do you remember how Genesis tells the story of the creation of human beings? God had created his marvellous world and he decided he wanted a people to look after it, to tend to it, to, to ensure that it flourished. So God picked up some dust and he sculpted it into a human being. And then as the final touch, he breathed his life into it. Humankind would do their task in his strength. Well, look at what we read here. John has told us again and again that the resurrection of Jesus is the brand new beginning for the world. It's the moment of new creation. This is the first day of the week. This is day one. And at this new beginning, God has a task again for his people. And so exactly as it happened in Genesis, Jesus breathes the Spirit into their lives so they can achieve it. They will do it in his strength. And this promise is still made to us today. That when we put our faith in Jesus, when we seek to follow our crucified and resurrected Lord, God will breathe his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And from there, the Spirit will guide us and empower us as we seek to live our lives with this new purpose. From there, the Holy Spirit will make us whole, complete. And in that strength, we tell the world about Jesus. So there we have it. Peace. Purpose. Power. The three things that are on offer when we invite Jesus into our lives. The three things that come together to create shalom, wholeness, completeness. Only Jesus can do that in your life. The disciples discovered that on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, as we told with the children. And we discover it today by turning to that same Jesus through repentance and faith. And to that end, we're going to pray now. Let us pray.